Welcome back to Digital Health 101. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. Now today, we're joined by Radhika Ilingar, the co-author of the book, Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived. And she'll explain to us why she calls it Enterprise Blockchain. We will discuss how the blockchain came about conceptually, the differences between proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake, the different roles for permission and permissionless systems, smart contracts, and the impact of the blockchain on our concerns relative to privacy and security, and all of that in the context of the impact it will have on healthcare. So if you've come to learn about crypto, you might be in the wrong podcast. So please join me in conversation with Radhika Ilingar in our Digital Health 101 classroom. Radhika Ilingar, welcome to Digital Health 101. Hi, Stefano. Great to be here with you today. I am super excited to talk to you because we were on a shared podcast or speaking with a friend of ours, Daniel Kraft, at a meeting. And I said something about the blockchain, which wasn't quite accurate. And you were smart enough to correct me, which I was very happy to be corrected because I was wrong. And I said, Daniel said, Radhika, you've got to come on a podcast and help me and our audience understand what this new thing, the blockchain, is all about. I looked this up recently, started as a $104 million business in 2019. It's now at $5.8 billion, has an ACGR of 65%. It's blowing up. So let's get a hold of this. So tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here talking to us about this. Well, very happy to be here with you today. I am a enterprise blockchain expert, have been on many thought leadership venues, TEDx speaker, Silicon Valley woman of influence, have spoken at one of the, some of the leading venues in the world on blockchain in technology conferences, etc. Author of the book, Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived, published in 2019. It's been a really great ride with blockchain and I got foundationally involved in blockchain because I saw something of a transformative power with this technology, which brought me back to earlier days in my life when I saw the advent of the internet. And we all know how transformative that ride has been. So blockchain as a technology is is such a foundational, powerful technology, and it's incredibly exciting in its implementations and use cases. And that also prompted me to write the book. I'd been speaking at, I think in 2018, alone, maybe 55 plus conferences, just me alone. And then my co-author, another 55 some conferences. So between the two of us, we had so much of great thought leadership at the vanguard of this technology that we felt it absolutely compelling to put our thoughts down our, sure. our and share our findings as well and, and interviews with thought leaders and business practitioners and blockchain practitioners that are embedded in the book. And so that's kind of where I am today, leading efforts, multiple initiatives in this arena. Great. Before we go too much further on all your initiatives, can we just define blockchain? <laughs> it's a block, it's a chain, it's a chain of blocks. What's a blockchain? It's a chain of blocks. <laughs> and actually, I mean, it's a, it's a distributed ledger technology. And a lot of people think it's kind of like a fancy database. And yes and no, it's a ledger which allows multiple owners to have ownership of the data that's within it. And that's a concept. Just a ledger is a, a record-keeping ledger. tool. It's a place we put notes. Correct. Marks. Okay, a ledger is just a... normal database and a normal ledger, you have one owner, right? You have one owner that owns the database and, and keeps all the records in that database or that ledger, for example. In a distributed ledger, it's kind of like multiple copies of the data. And then in a blockchain ledger, it's multiple copies of the data owned by different people. 
So they all have the same kind of copy of the data. Everybody's case is a shared ledger. Everybody sees the same information, but you've got multiple owners of the data. It's a really key foundational concept, right? That instead of having one person having a data set that they're hoarding, collecting, they're tracking, that nobody has access to, they don't know if it's true or false. Because there's multiple copies of the same data with multiple people having access to it, owning it, it's like really impossible to, to make a change to it, right? Because then well, everybody would see it. Correct. I mean, and that it actually, you bring up a beautiful segue to that thought, which you just told us is the fact that the reason why blockchain exists is that we're all trying to arrive at a single source of truth. Now, if everybody sees the same information and everybody can see when somebody's amending, changing anything in the ledger, then it kind of keeps us all honest, right? Because then we say, oh, well, you made a change there. You amended something, right? So everything is the second attribute that is really important is that it's immutable. So once you've amended it, you're not changing it. You're making an amendment. It's like saying you're appending to the database every time. And so every transaction, every record, and everything that happens with that record is being logged, right? So it's immutable. And so you can't you can't take an eraser and change the number. There's no change. You gotta make a note with an arrow to that number says that this number is now changed from 100 to 103. Exactly. But somebody can go and see that yeah it was a hundred at one point. And this is the person who made that change. Yeah. And you know where the chain comes in is that every block is kind of like records, the transactions are kind of captured in that block. And then every time you add it, you move to the next block. And so now there you've got a chain of blocks, essentially, and that's why it's called blockchain. But, you know, all the records basically are immutable and right? you can't change anything. That's immutability is an incredibly powerful attribute of blockchain, which is very different from today's systems. And then secondly, the fact that there are multiple owners to this shared ledger is also very transformative because in today's world, you've got a database, you've got one owner. Add to it, you can share, you can do all of that, but there's basically one owner and the power rests with that owner where you revoke and grant access, you limit what they can do with it. Sometimes, you know, when we have shared documents, for example, you know, we can say, can you view it? Can you edit it? Can you provide things? But essentially it just still belongs to the person who created or the entity which created this document. So with a blockchain, all of these records basically are tied together by the fact that they are A, immutable, B, that the hashes of these records are stored in each block. And all of these these blocks kind of are, they're basically connected, right? So you've got this chain of immutable truth going and all of the history of all those transactions going to the beginning of time, so to speak. And so this is kind of the power of what we see from total transparency and auditability and traceability of information, as we'll keep talking about this a little further in our conversation. Great. And there's just so just for our audience, this data lives in the cloud, correct? It's not on somebody's computer. It can be. I mean, it's not, it, you know, the thing is that it's storage of data is like a different topic altogether, basically. Data can be stored in today's cloud systems, for example. Then there's new kinds of storage system, decentralized storage systems, which again, with that concept that I told you about, where you have multiple owners of these storage locations, essentially. Very different concept altogether as well. So storage, again, is a very different thing. To be clear, data is not stored on the blockchain. It's the hash of the record that's stored on the blockchain. It's basically information about somebody touched this record, somebody did something with it. It's a record. It's a kind of a trail of what happened to that record, if you will. So where is the record? 
the record is stored wherever the customer or the person, the entity, whatever wants to store it. It could be a cloud-based system. It could be a brand new decentralized storage mechanism. It could be a hybrid model. There's many different ways that we can store data, right? And so- Okay. So this, the gold coins, we'll get to crypto in a minute, but the gold is stored somewhere. Everybody knows where it is. And if somebody changes it or makes a change, a hash, as you call it, to change it, that is what sits on the blockchain, is those changes to that gold it's lingot. changes to, it's basically all the transactions of the record that are stored on the blockchain, right? This is what's... Okay. Happened. And it's uh, different between, you know, the cryptocurrency side of things and then the enterprise side of things, which is, to be clear, where I play. Got it. We'll come back to that in a second. Who first came up with this idea of blockchain and what problem were they trying to solve? Another good question. A lot of people point to Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008, coming up with the white paper about Bitcoin. But actually, the journey started well before that, late 1980s into mm -hmm. the early 1990s. Dr. Scott Stornetta and Dr. Stuart Haber. And actually, Dr. Scott Stornetta wrote the introduction to our book. So we're very happy about that. But Drs. Stornetta and Haber were cryptologists, if you will, and cryptographers and researchers working at Bell Labs or Bellcor, I'm sorry, and in New Jersey. And at that time, and they were physicists and they were conducting research on basically the digital record, thinking about a future in which information was going to be digital. And when you have digital information, they were thinking about, well, when everything goes digital, how are we going to prove something actually exists or doesn't? How do we know it's real or isn't? I mean, there's, they were really well ahead of their time in terms of thinking about what is true in a digital world? How do we establish truth? And so this search for truth was really what led them on through their research. And they were actually in the process of trying to disprove something when they actually ended up proving it. And so what <laughs> ended up creating was an immutable ledger of a digital record. And mm. at the time, obviously, that digital world really truly didn't exist. So they ended up having to publish all the hashes. And they said, what is the one place that we can publish all of this information so that many eyes can potentially see it? And we therefore know that it's something that actually happened because somebody's going to have seen it, right? And there's going to be millions of people that have seen it at the same time. So they ended up publishing it in the, I think it was the New York Times, which was the most well-read, well-subscribed paper at the time. There were millions of copies that were distributed. And so they were able to publish the hashes of their work in the classified section. And that then proved that, you know, millions of people potentially with these copies have seen the hashes of the transactions. And therefore, no one can refute that it actually happened, that it was there. And everybody saw that information, so you can't really change the information. They were really tired of the centralized systems where things can be, are changeable, are mutable. They were really thinking about the failure of these systems and saying, well, how can we march into this digital world and be able to prove that something is true or something actually happened? And how can we know that the maximum number of people saw that it actually happened and be able to prove that out? And so their seminal work in the late 1980s and early 1990s really helped shape the framework for Satoshi Nakamoto with the white paper that was published in 2008 
and their paper was actually referenced. So they published their paper in 1991. And then Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, whoever that person is, attributed or there's citations for doctors Stornetta and Haver's paper. So this is a really, there were three references to be clear in Satoshi Nakamoto's paper that referenced, you know, doctors Haber and Stornetta's paper. So, you know, when we think about the origins, it's really, it arose from cryptography. It arose from two researchers, two physicists that were trying to envision what this would be like to march into a digital world and say, what does that mean to, to have authenticity or to be able to verify that something happened? What is the truth in a digital world? Which is really, really amazing. And so we were thrilled when Dr. Stornetta wrote the introduction to our book because he is, he and Dr. Haber, I will say, are considered the fathers or the forefathers of blockchain. Fascinating history to how we got to blockchain and where we are today, where it seems like everybody uses it, but it was such a thoughtful idea back in the 80s. Okay, so where are we now with the application of blockchain in the healthcare space specifically? Yeah, if you think about healthcare use cases, where it's really begun is more so on the non-PHI side of healthcare. We're talking about more of the administrative side of healthcare, whether you're talking revenue cycle management, you're talking provider credentialing, for example, verifiable Hmm. credentials, you're talking about in in life sciences, for example, how to fight counterfeit drugs, you need the track and trace mechanisms. Those are a lot of those administrative sides of of healthcare, if you will. Uh, Revenue cycle management, I'd say, is one of those exciting areas where we've seen massive deployments. Change Healthcare is one of the organizations that has been on that side of the fence. And they've not only proven great scalability, they do about 50 million transactions a day. They're in merger talks with United Healthcare Group's Optum. And so this is a very well proven out use case, massively scalable enterprise grade system that they've deployed. And on the revenue cycle management side of things, I'll say it's really been an amazing area because if you think about what you're talking in terms of RCM, you're talking about the administrative side, the financial side, the clinical side of healthcare kind of merging together. We all know that these systems are siloed. So when you start having to share information across these systems, you create a lot of friction and there is a lot of friction to be solved. And then things are, there's fraud that happens. There's, you know, billing fraud that happens. There's revenue fraud that can happen. There's claims fraud that can happen. There's all kinds of fraud that can happen because people are able to change records. They're able to erase their tracks. They're able to spoof that they're somebody that they're not. Lots of different issues that, that happen. So I think that, you know, on that side of, of healthcare, we're seeing a lot of value in terms of things that like claims adjudication that's now much more you know easy to do with a blockchain based system because it's all about transparency and truth as i mentioned and traceability of information and sharing of information in a more accurate and a more honest way if you will so that's kind of been very exciting to see more on the on the non i would say phi systems in healthcare in the life sciences aspect of healthcare drug discovery 
counterfeit drugs. So the whole supply chain of drugs, for example, the DCSCA, for example, has been a very big regulatory tailwind with, you know, the federal government saying you've got to have a system where you can track it all the way back to the manufacturer, all the source of materials, everything, every ingredient that goes into that drug in the manufacturer has to be traceable, trackable. Everything is held accountable across the entire chain. That's pretty bold and that's pretty ambitious. And it's something that traditional supply chain logistics systems are not equipped to do because the visibility of traditional systems only give you, you know, visibility to the person in front of you in the chain and the person behind you in the chain. But this end-to-end chain supply chain visibility, it's incredibly powerful. So that's where we're seeing blockchain-based systems bringing great transparency and traceability and trackability of information and truth of information into supply chains to make them much more powerful and secure. Now, see, are you seeing another very interesting thing, and I think it may be interesting to some of the physicians in our audience, is this idea of smart contracts and how they're applied to blockchain. Can you talk a little bit about that? So basically, they're automated processes and automated processes that are based on, you know, certain conditions that have to be met in order for actions to be able to occur. This automation of processes is incredibly important because when you think about, you know, different people working together, sometimes vendors, sometimes competitors, lots of stakeholders working in a system, you have to have a system that kind of looks at what are the minimum requirements for sharing or whatever that you're you're trying the whatever function you're trying to execute and be able to be sure that that function can then execute without once it qualifies the required criteria so it's like a contract right if you fulfill the terms of a contract it gets executed same thing with a smart contract so in a case of for example in trade finance for example or in in a payments area wouldn't everybody want to get paid if you've done your job if you've fulfilled the terms of a contract absolutely However, there are delays, astronomical delays that create lots of cash flow crunches in the systems that of today, where somebody says, well, yeah, you did the work, but the terms of payment are not really connected to the work automatically. It just is a very, very slow process. These delays and disputes as well. Did you fulfill the terms of the contract? How was it fulfilled? We're not in agreement that you fulfilled it. You didn't do your work as planned. And then you have to go through some court or arbitration method to prove out that somebody actually did the work. Smart contracts really are very efficient contracts that can execute based on agreed upon terms of execution. Very simple. So because you, the data is on the blockchain, it's you can check that it was done. And therefore, if it was done, there's no barrier to payment. There's no dispute either, right? And so this whole question of differing opinions or whatever just doesn't exist because no people are really involved. It's a contract. The contract terms are fulfilled. Payment executes. End of story. Right? Wouldn't that be fabulous if we integrate it into healthcare? <laughs> Got to pay for the work we do in a timely fashion. I think that's uh, definitely an opportunity. So tell me where we're going. I've heard in the next decade or so that blockchain is going to revolutionize a great deal of healthcare. One of the areas I'm most keen about learning is interoperability and data sharing. Can you talk to us about how you think the blockchain will impact those two problems we have? Well, blockchain was designed for data sharing. I mean, that is the ethos is just built on sharing of information. It's all about what we call power symmetry in terms of the symmetry of of sharing information across the board. So 
everybody that is a stakeholder in the system who is basically part of this consensus, if you will, all the nodes on a network in a permission system, which is on the enterprise side. And this is not a crypto, this is not a permissionless system. We're talking about permission systems here, where you've got known entities that are part of a node, a node network, if you will, in healthcare, for example. So you could have payers, you could have providers, you could have pharma companies, you could have patients at the table. Wow, what a concept. And you could have other folks as well, other stakeholders, people that are all basically around the data of healthcare, all wanting to share certain information, for example. Wouldn't it be great if we can all share that information and everybody sees the same thing at the same time? I mean, this is a revolutionary way of looking at something. Current systems are flawed because they're so fragmented. And we all know the pain of fragmentation and siloing that we are experiencing in healthcare, where we're supposed to be treating a patient, we're supposed to be all about providing this highest level of care to a patient, but we can't see the same information all at the same time. It's difficult to share, got lots of problems and friction around sharing itself. There's data issues itself that haven't been solved, even despite all of the data standards that have been built. And then last but not least, ownership of data. Who does this data belong to, right? If you think about patient ownership of data, which is something, again, that in the world of blockchain and people in healthcare, you know, are really excited. It's really turning the conversation around and saying the patient can, for the first time, own his or her own data and can actually grant and revoke access to that data and can specify from a granular perspective how long a provider can have access to this data, how long a payer can have access to this data, and on down the line. This whole sharing of data, if we are all seeing the same data, and it is a lot more contextualized around the patient, I'll just say that the future of what we talk about in personalized healthcare, being able to provide a much more tailored version of healthcare to a patient because we uh, absolutely see that all the holistic arc of data around this patient or this person, I should say, that's really where we're marching towards. You know, currently without data sharing at its ultimate potential, we can't really have an intelligent conversation around how we implement personalized healthcare. So one of the things you skirted on, but I didn't actually say, but I think what you meant is that one of the things that blockchain addresses very well is the issue of security, right? That was, that's another aspect. And, you know, I was talking about the data itself on the data sharing aspect of it. We all know that current systems have the greatest threat surfaces basically around data sharing. And now more than ever, when we are seeing healthcare systems that are now being challenged, with remote monitoring, remote patient access, online services, all of our systems are kind of stretching beyond their limits because as we're trying to share this valuable data across all of this complex network is where we have some of the greatest threats and vulnerabilities from a security and privacy standpoint. So as we look to what we need during and post-pandemic and beyond, I mean, during the pandemic, we've seen such a, a burgeoning of remote care, of remote monitoring, of remote access to health systems, 
that's where we see the greatest challenges from a security and privacy standpoint. So that's an area of my personal focus is how can we safeguard the connection points through all of this interconnected world that we are living in, in healthcare, and it's going to be increasingly becoming so. How can we safeguard all of our interests? How can we safeguard patient safety? How can we save data? And the blockchain will help with that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I think that's the future, right? In the next 10, 15 years, we'll see blockchain releasing us from the bondage of security because we can track it and that finally enable the vision which you just outlined of precision medicine, which is to be able to see a patient holistically, an individual holistically, be able to access all their data. I'll just add to that one little point, which is that you know current internet-based systems were never designed for security and privacy. They were meant for open communication because TCKP as a protocol was really designed for open communication and it's marvelously done that. But blockchain systems are by design ultra secure, by design private. And so I think this is why we've got something like blockchain technology that's really going to help us get to the future. I want to talk about something that's come up in the past that I had misunderstood. I want to talk about the logistics of building a blockchain. My understanding was that it uh, you have to mine. I'm not entirely sure what the mining means. It requires a lot of energy to build a blockchain, but you've disavowed me of that. You said, no, that's, that's maybe for crypto, but in this enterprise version, it's all different. Can you just get into that a little bit? Yeah. And to be clear, it's not all of crypto either. It's Bitcoin, really. Oh. <laughs> it's, Bitcoin's proof of work. That's the consensus protocol that uh, that Bitcoin utilizes. And what proof of work just means is that there's a hashing puzzle. Remember, we talked about hashing records. There's a hashing puzzle that all of these miners on the nodes have to solve. And the first one to kind of solve the puzzle, and you have to mine in order to solve this puzzle. So basically, the result, the answer is compute intensive, right? Because you've got all these miners all solving thousands of computers, right? Uh, you've got at any time, maybe 10 to 20,000 nodes, right? All these miners using up a lot of energy in order to compute the answer. And that's all done in parallel, by the way. And so when you've got this compute intensive mechanism like proof of work, as it is in Bitcoin, you've got an incredibly powerful, secure and trust layer that is built. But the downside is the energy consumption, right? So again, it matters what you're trying to do. There's no one size fits all. That system is good for a certain purpose. And so the proof of stake, which is kind of more prevalent now in other systems that have come about, like a Solana, for example, you may have heard of Solana. That's a proof of stake example. They're much more popular these days because this proof of stake means that basically one node is kind of solving that puzzle. And then everybody else is kind of saying, corroborating the answer and saying, yes, you solved it correctly. They're not solving actually. And so this kind of system, and that system, by the way, is Solana, Tezos, Cardano. These are examples of proof of stake systems. Polygon is another example of a proof of stake system. These are systems that are not compute intensive. It's a much more efficient way of handling consensus. Then you've got permission systems that are basically employed by the enterprise. And the reason why permission systems are so great in enterprise is that in order to be a node on the network, you have to have gone through KYC AML. You have to be a vetted node. People know who you are as an entity. 
or as an individual, you have to have gone through the hoops to prove out that you're going to be a bona fide node on the network. It's not anonymous or pseudonymous. It's a very known entity that is now a node on the network. And therefore, that trust is sort of inherently built, right? If you're in an enterprise system, confidentiality, privacy, trust has to be with known players, you're less likely to do business with somebody you don't know, right? And so in enterprise, the framework and the thinking around what it means to be a node on the network in enterprise systems is much more conducive to a permission system where KYC AML is sort of that ground zero, right? In order to be a qualified node on the network. So a node in the network is someone who has access to the blockchain or has a copy of the blockchain or the blocks on the chain, oh, basically? You're basically somebody that you can write to the blockchain, right? So you have that right, you know, when you talk about read-write access, you have write access to the blockchain. And so you can also read from the blockchain. So you you're basically have access to the blockchain, but you can also contribute to the blockchain. And then there is a consensus mechanism around the nodes of the network, just very similar to the other ones Got I talked about. But there are different consensus mechanisms for permission systems. So we don't want to probably dive into those. But I'm just no, but I think it was important. I learned a lot that, you know, that there are these nodes, these nodes are these trusted entities. You can either earn your trust or you are a trusted entity, depending on what level you're working at. Those are the only people that can actually hash or tag the data in the network, which can be changed, but they can read it and they can... Well, you have right access, right? You have right privileges and right access to the blockchain in the sense that you can append, right? You can always append to the blockchain. You also agree on what you're going to share, right? And so not everything's going to be shared in enterprise confidentiality is a huge priority. And so you've got, you know, corporations that are going to be nodes on a network. They're not going to put everything on the out there in the blockchain, right? And their data is also very important. That's part of trade secret or what have you. It's their proprietary data. They're all going to agree on what they can share. So for example, we were talking about the drug supply chain, right? Pharma companies are now part of big consortia where they are sharing minimum sets of data saying, we're contributing to this information that is all in the nodes of the network, for example, and we all see that data together. And that means we know kind of what happened to the manufacturing of this particular drug, for example, where did it originate? Where did it end? This end-to-end transparency across the entire drug supply chain is something that is hugely important and as a government mandate, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe, for example. Because as we know, counterfeit drugs is a huge problem. Oh, counterfeit drugs is a bigger problem than most people realize, right? And uh, this idea of tracking the supply chain in pharma is actually one of the areas I think blockchain is the most success in. Listen, Erotica, thank you so much for taking us down this high-level review of blockchain. You have a book, 452 pages of it or something. Roughly. (laughs) Roughly. Which is called, one more time? It's called Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived. I'll include the link. I'll send you the link to include in the podcast. And we think it's probably the best, most comprehensive book on enterprise blockchain you can lay your hands on and it will get you started in the right direction and help you know where to begin. Awesome. And people want to find you or hear you or track you or follow you, where would they do that? You can follow me on Twitter at Iyengar 13 You can... And one more, at Iyengar, just print I-Y-E-N-G-A-R. That's very correct. Yeah. And so you can follow me on Twitter. You can check me out on LinkedIn, Radhika Iyengar Emmons on LinkedIn. Yeah. 
there's multiple ways to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to be with us today. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure our community will as well. And I look forward to maybe having you back in a year or so and see how things are going. Great. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon on the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. You're focusing on it and uh, Dorset just left Twitter to tackle what he said was, I think he said it's the most important thing in his lifetime was going to be the blockchain. Remember when we talked about truth and transparency being such a core value and a core ethos of blockchain? Mm-hmm. There's so much truth everything, Stefano. It's anytime you pick up anything, you don't know. And in the world of Twitter, there we've got fake bots. We've got, you know, malicious bots. You've got all kinds of bad actors that are out there trying to do bad things when all of us just want to lead a nice, happy life. <laughs> right, so exactly. I think that this is, I feel his calling. You know, you lo- you have Tim Berners-Lee, who was, you know, the, the creator, if you will, of the World Wide Web, who said, oh my God, what have I done? This is not what I intended. This is not what I envisioned. He envisioned for a framework where people could share things openly and constructively and productively. And instead, what he saw has happened is something that it's just kind of grown some interesting ramifications, I think. I don't know, it's just, it's evolved in a way that he didn't expect. And he's shocked at the amount of fraud and counterfeit and, you know, crime that exists today digitally. And so he's trying to solve things in a new way. And he's actually very much a proponent of the Web3 movement. So this whole movement to a decentralized future so that all of us have level playing field that we can trust truly one another digitally. How do we establish trust so that we can do business and to be beneficial to one another. And I think this collaborative sort of spirit, this community spirit of blockchain is something that actually drew me into why I'm doing this. I feel like the whole mindset is very different on the blockchain front. So one of the areas I thought I heard blockchain could be used very effectively is in emerging economies where there's monies that are being sent in to assist with, I don't know, build a hospital. All of a sudden they lose two thirds of the money, you know? Has actually, we've been talking about using blockchain for donating funds to, their, you know, has that worked? Where, anywhere you want to secure trust is where blockchain is applicable. But has it worked though? In that particular space? That you- it absolutely. Charitable foundations, I think, are looking at how do you leverage blockchain so that you can track the funds, you know where it went, you know, and then you can track the use of funds too. So I think that's very powerful. We have a whole chapter in our book called on social good and what blockchain for social good means, blockchain for social impact means. There are enormous, enormously impactful use cases. Then there is uh, cross-border payments and e-commerce that is more inclusive for the entire world. I'm on the advisory board of a company that is doing some extraordinary, I mean, they have a truly next-gen cross-borderless e-commerce digital platform, but that's being used for financial inclusion for women business owners in Africa. I mean, but so what's the cross-border bit? Why does that matter? I mean, I don't understand why. I mean, you can make payments across borders already. It's just a little bit complicated, but what, what, what makes if it If you wanted to buy some article, something that was made by some woman in the mountains of Kenya, 
and she's not connected to any internet she's not connected to any of that she doesn't have that infrastructure she doesn't even have a bank account because what they use is the mpesa system how can you buy directly from her i can't i also know expectation want to but on the other hand if she if i so with pay her with crypto how's she going to spend that money with this system you can you can absolutely buy directly from her and obviously there's a vat tax or whatever that goes and there's a split payment aspect to it and this company absolutely has done that they have developed the platform already they're onboarding about 3000 women in partnership with the gates foundation mm-hmm. and they're doing some marvelous work to empower women of africa that are you know contributing so how does it actually work so this woman makes a product yeah. she puts it somehow i have access to it on the internet that's so far so good i look at it, i click on it, i want to buy it you no know, you you go through the marketplace that this company has and so the marketplace has the woman who made the product on one end and on the other end is the platform where you can pay via fiat via crypto via anything and be able to buy directly from her no middle person involved it's peer to peer and oh. at the moment of the purchase there is a payment that automatically a tax payment that automatically goes to the government too so i mean you've got this incredible powerful system of cross border it's borderless actually because you're sitting here in the united states or somewhere in europe or wherever and then you're buying directly from this woman who made this product in kenya